Phyllis Marie Corbin was a 16-year-old from St. Louis, Missouri. She had behavior issues that caused her to be sent to a juvenile shelter a couple of times. In late September 1963, Phyllis was scheduled to be released after spending a month at the facility. According to paperwork, Phyllis left for home. The next day, someone allegedly saw her at a local bar. She was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. Last week, we went the whole way back to 1945. I spoke of how good we have it in 2020 compared to back then. This week, we move up 18 years, and once again we get to contrast how things have changed, this time in regards to children. Back then, no car seats, kids riding around in the beds of pickup trucks, allowed to stay out well after dark. The metal jungle gyms with no rubber coating underneath. No worrying about children inhaling secondhand smoke. I mean, it's almost funny and scary to think about it now. On the other hand, maybe we've gone too far with the safety of children in the 21st century, to the point we now have the phenomenon of helicopter parenting, which has its own share of problems. But there's an area where there has been a decided improvement with children and that is with their mental health. The public is now much more cognizant of the signs of abuse. There are now accurate tests that can be done for ADHD, bipolar issues, autism. We no longer dismiss a child's misconduct as being quote-unquote bad just because. We now look deeper to see if there could be a physical or chemical reason for their behavior, and it's meant a world of progress. So, in the disappearance of Phyllis Corbin, I think about all of that as I ponder Phyllis's continual misbehavior, how she was sent to a juvenile facility, and how, of all things, she was seemingly allowed to leave that place alone when her time was up, then ultimately disappearing. And I think how her life would have been in the 21st century, because things are different now. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Good's website, charlieproject.org. Phyllis Corbin came from a large family with many brothers and sisters. Yet unlike her siblings who had normal lives of going to school and such, Phyllis ran away several times. However, she always came back and no one had to go looking for her. Her time away could be for a few days or up to a week. Phyllis would stay with friends in the neighborhood until she felt like going home. This eventually led to her being sent to the Good Shepherd, a home for juveniles who acted like Phyllis did. She had spent a short time there earlier in 1963, and before Phyllis disappeared, she was there an entire month. So according to Good Shepherd records, Phyllis was allowed to leave on her own recognizance in late September 1963. No one picked her up, she wasn't given bus fare, nothing. Phyllis was expected to find her own way home. 
However, there are reasons to believe she left with another girl who did not go missing. Allegedly, the two were then seen at a bar owned by someone in Phyllis's family. Phyllis was never seen again. There's not a lot of information concerning Phyllis's disappearance, and some of the information we do have could have been altered or just rumor. But these are the three main questions still remaining after 57 years. Number one, why was Phyllis's disappearance hardly ever a topic of conversation in the Corbin family over the next five decades? Number two, who was this other girl who left with Phyllis that day, and does she even really exist? And number three, what are we supposed to make of a story a member of the Corbin family has told in which he said he gave Phyllis money to go to New Orleans. Except for our guest today, and a few others, the rest of Phyllis's family has made no comment on her case over the last 57 years, so their own beliefs cannot be passed along in this summary. The guest for this episode is Phyllis's niece, Donna Corbin. Unfound News as many of you now know, the probable remains of Andrea Bowman were found on the Bowman property last week. And by the time you're hearing this episode, it could be that Dennis Bowman has already confessed to the murder of Kathleen Doyle in 1980. We had unfound hope he will confess to the murder of Andrea as well. Next, the Oxygen series concerning the disappearances of Molly Miller and Colt Haynes is finally coming out. I will be interested to hear all of your impressions of how well they cover the case and be looking for Phil Klein, private investigator from Tom Brown's case. He was interviewed and worked on the disappearances at one time. And lastly, I played in a disc golf tournament last weekend in Orlando, had one great round and two very poor ones. Yes, still a better missing persons program host than Disc Golfer. Where you can find Unfound. Unfound supports accounts on Podomatic, iTunes, Stitcher, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, and Facebook. On Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, please join us on the Unfound podcast channel on YouTube for the Unfound live show. All of you can talk with me, and I can answer your questions. Contribute to Unfound at patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast. This week, I need to thank Stephanie and Antonia. You can also contribute at PayPal, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. That is also the email address. Merchandise, the books at amazon.com in both ebook and print form. Do not forget the reviews. Shirts at unfound-podcast.myshopify.com. Cards at makeplaincards.com forward slash sell forward slash unfound podcast. And please mention unfound at all true crime websites and forums. Thank you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound the niece of Phyllis Corbin, Donna Corbin. Donna, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. I'm very happy to have you here, Donna. Let's start here. Um, and I, I think the, uh, the the listeners need to know, of course, that being that you are a niece, and I'm not in here to get into people's ages or anything, but just so everybody understands, were you even alive when Phyllis disappeared in 1963? I was not. Okay. All right. So the listeners need to understand this uh, as we go through this interview. I think it's very important to know that. So being that that is the case, what got you involved in this? Why you as the niece? Why not one of her siblings or, or somebody else? Why is it somebody who wasn't even born at the time that she disappeared? Well, I was fascinated when I started hearing little bits and pieces about Phyllis. Who is this Phyllis lady? I knew the rest of my family, but I didn't know who Phyllis was. And I would hear little pieces that she was my aunt. She was my dad's sister, um, but she had came up missing in the fall of 1963. And nobody really knew what happened to her. So I started asking more questions and more questions, and none of it was making a lot of sense to me. So um, I needed to know who this person was. I'm her niece. That's my aunt. Yeah. I have a right to know this. And um, and then she has a right to know that she has family out here there that cares and that did search for her and did look for her. Sure. So I was the one that took that on. Um, no one else knew the only living siblings at the time when I first got involved with this several years back didn't know where to turn, didn't know what to do, and I think we're honoring my grandparents' right to just let it go. I'm not one to sit back and let it go. There's something that's amiss in this whole situation, and I'm out to find out what it is. Okay. Interesting. Could you even begin to say now, uh, what age did you first hear about, Phyllis? Because in our conversations... Uh, I think you've made it decently clear that Phyllis was not a huge topic of conversation, even though she went missing. So, even in what context did you even, you know, hear about her, and how old were you? I think I first heard about her when I was eighteen or nineteen years old, so many years ago. And I heard the name Phyllis, and I, when I would ask questions, I would be shocked. So that just piques my interest even more because I'm a very curious. Um, so I would, every family gathering, get together at every opportunity I had, I would ask another question or another question, and I would be shushed again. So when I really put my foot down and said, I have a right to know, was approximately three years ago. Um, and we were at a family reunion, and I said, okay, I need the story, and I have a right to know the story. And that's when I was finally given the story. So when mm. I was approximately 52 years old, because I'm now 55, was the first mm. time I really got all this information. Wow. So are we then to understand, once again, you said that your father uh, was Phyllis's brother. Uh, he was not, he did not tell you about Phyllis then growing up. You know, he never said something like, well, I had this sister and she went missing in 1963 and I think you should know a little bit about her and we don't know what happened. Not many conversations like that growing up, you know, becoming a teenager. No conversations like that. That's one of the things that baffles me the most. How can you have a sibling and never speak of that sibling? Huh. I, I agree with you because, like you said, she's your aunt. I know that um, I knew my aunts 
uh, that, uh, you know, growing up, and one of them is uh, still alive. Um, so it would seem, and most people are very close, you know, to their aunts and uncles. So yes, it is a surprise. It's not like she's not like your third cousin twice removed or something. You know, she's your absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And I knew the rest of the family, and we would have get-togethers, and I would, you know, my uncle Mike would be there, my uncle Steve, my aunt um, Cheryl, my aunt Debbie, and my aunt Patty, and no Phyllis. But every once in a while, the word Phyllis would come out of someone's mouth. So, okay, and we'll get into that a uh, little bit more of this topic a little later. So, having said all that, um, what have you personally been told about Phyllis? Once people maybe did start opening up, whether it was her siblings or other people, um, what uh, did you learn about her? You know, um, anything, her interests, her personality. Uh, where in line does she fall? I, I know, like you just said, she has many siblings. Where in line did she fall among those siblings, the oldest, youngest, whatever? What can you tell the people about Phyllis? Yes, she's the second oldest. So she, her um, sister Cheryl, my aunt Cheryl, was the oldest, and then there was Phyllis, and then there's um, four siblings after that, five siblings after that. I apologize. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a total of seven of those kids, wow. and. From what I was told is she was a handful that um, because money was tight in their home back in that day, my grandfather didn't hold a job. He was a gambler. He was a womanizer and didn't hold a job. And um, he would be abusive towards my grandmother, who in turn was abusive towards the children. Since the other children were so much younger, it was taken on Cheryl. Cheryl eventually left. She left at a very young age. Um, she left at 17. She got married, had another life. So Phyllis took the brunt of everybody else's mm. frustrations and beatings. Right. So, so then, when, um, when Cheryl would leave, so that would make then Phyllis the oldest in the house. Yes. So oh. the brunt of everybody's anger came out on Phyllis. Huh. Okay. And you said, uh, and I have in my notes, you used the word as well. She was a handful. Um, uh, we like running away and and doing other things like in school. Would she like skip school? What, I mean, what what do what do we mean when we say a handful? So from what I've been able to gather is uh, her school records are good. So she attended school up into um, her freshman year of high school, and then started missing a little bit of school here and there after that as she began to run away more often. Um, and she was running from the house. She was running from the Things that were bad at home, there was not always food on the table. They didn't always have a meal to eat. So she was running away from those type of things in attempts to always get to Cheryl, who was her older wow. sister and her savior. Wow, that's interesting. Um, so none of the other children had this tendency to run away the way you understand it, like your father and the others. Do you? They never did any running away once, you know, maybe they, when they got to Phyllis's age, did they just stick around the house? Um, everyone stayed at home. I, the two younger ones, uh, Steve and Michael, um, well, they were not the youngest of the family, but they were towards the bottom of the order. Mm. Um, they joined the service at a very young age, so they were gone out of the house. Nobody else did anything because the fewer kids at home, the happier everybody became. Okay. All right. 
And you um, put this uh, once again. Let's talk a little bit more, maybe about the running away. What we, what you understand about it, what you've learned. So, when she would run away, would she, um, you know, come back on her own? Would they have to go look for her? I mean, wh- and you know, if she was trying to get to her sister Cheryl. Did she ever reach there and try to live with her? What do you know about all that? So I know she never left St. Louis, that she would only be gone, you know, a day or two at a time. Never longer than three days was her longest span that she was gone. And she would always be couch surfing at our girlfriend's house or this friend's house or that friend's house from school or a neighborhood girl. She never left St. Louis, Missouri. She was always there, and she was always in touch with Cheryl. She didn't have the money or means or, um, to get to where Cheryl was, so she was never mm-hmm. leaving St. Louis. Okay. During those runaway episodes. Okay, and um, so there were multiple runaway episodes, so more than two or three, would you say, the way you understand it? I would, yes, the way I understand it, there was, you know, almost monthly. Oh, she would disappear for a day or two. Okay, but she would come back on her own. She would always come back on her own. Okay. So she was a teenager when she disappeared, and so this must have started very early on when she was a teenager then. It started at about the age of 14. Yeah, wow, okay. All right, but she already came always came home, and we'll get into that uh, a little bit later as well. Um, you talked about abuse. Uh, her, Your grandfather, her father, abusive toward... Your grandmother, her mother, and then that was transferred onto the kids. Um, that's I have to say, my impression is that's not usually t- something that's talked about uh, in a family, but obviously that's been talked about in yours. How, how did you find out about all that? My mother um, has given me a lot of information. She's a very sound mind and able-bodied woman that's been able to give me a lot of information from the family. And then I've confirmed it with... Um, you know, my Aunt Debbie, who is still alive in that family, um, the only sibling that's still alive, she said that, yes, they experienced a lot of physical abuse by my grandmother. Um, they would get whipped with extension cords or willow tree wow. branches or whatever they could reach. Um, my grandmother was not beyond, you know, punching them with a closed hand um, or anything to... And I don't know, I can't project what my grandmother was thinking, but I know mm. she was abused. And just in my research, I think an abused person often projects that onto somebody lesser than them, mm. lesser size or statue of them. So. And uh, did she ever at some point, you know, speak about regret for, you know, doing this? And do you know that if she ever felt that that was the reason that maybe – if Phyllis did just run off by herself, and we're open to different, you know, theories in this disappearance, but could be one of the reasons that she ran off. Do you think that your grandmother ever acknowledged that or anything? No, she never acknowledged that. Um, despite, I mean, my grandmother lived to be a very old um, person, and I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. I didn't see any of that side of her, but I didn't live there either. Yeah, I was a grandchild that came to visit. Right. So I never saw that. I, I do remember having uh, watched my um, Aunt Debbie and my Uncle Michael go out to the tree and get switches so she could whip the kids. But she never did that to any of the grandchildren or anyone else. But she did whip wow. her kids, and I did witness that. Wow. Okay. 
All right. Um, so let's move on to this. That sounds like uh, a very scary situation uh, there. Uh, let's move on to this. Uh, the Good Shepherd, what is it? The Good Shepherd has, it's um, ran by a Catholic charities services. So they have a couple different programs. From my understanding, they do schooling, rehabilitation, and it's a detention placement center as well. So the children get placed there either by family or by the court system, and they serve anywhere from several days to several months um, at that location where they go through some extensive um, family therapies and group sessions with mm. other like peers. Right. And the people should know that the Good Shepherd still exists, and we'll be talking about you know some of your interaction uh, with them before mm -hmm. this interview is over. But I'm guessing that what the Good Shepherd does here in the 21st century might be a little more in depth now than it was back in the early 60s. You know, given that we know um, you know so much yeah. more about child behavior and abuse and things like that. Totally agree. They were an open door policy at that time, so children were able to just wander off and leave. And um, so I've gotten very little information from them, but we can go over that whenever you're ready to okay. go. Over yeah, that. okay. And we have to, and probably being it's uh, 57 years later, nobody working there now was working there in the early 60s, so we have to understand that too. Uh, do you understand? Do you know why uh, Phyllis ended up? And there in the first place, was it, like you said, court-appointed, or was it something that the family arranged? So the first time she was sent there, um, it was a family arrangement. She was sent there for seven days um, in June of 1963. And um, um, then this, she ran away again after that, and she was appointed a Mrs. Donnelly from the court system, who was a juvenile um, court um, probation-type officer. I don't know what they called it back in the day, if they used those terms or not. But that's the information I have. That's on this document that I have in front of me as well. Okay. And she um, sent her there for 30 days to go through some rehabilitation. That was August 22nd of 1963 through September 23rd of 1963. Mm. Okay. And so she was there uh, a few times then. She was there twice that um, the records show. Okay. I don't know that if she was there any other times or not. Okay. And uh, any idea, have you ever been able to get any feeling? I don't even know how anybody would know this, but I have to ask. How she did there? Did she like it there? Any any ideas at all? I, the only thing I can say is that I would have to assume if it's in fact true that she was a runaway from there, that she didn't like it there. Okay. That's but right. if the records are correct, she's not a runaway from there. So All right. this is where my confusion comes in. I, I agree with you. Okay. And maybe we need to just talk a little bit more about that. Uh, how far was the, you know, the people are probably going to find this uh, fairly interesting. How far was the Good Shepherd uh, from where Phyllis's house was, her home was? Um, within blocks. So my grandparents lived huh. very near Vandermeter, and it was like six to eight blocks away, depending on which route you took. That's it? 
eight blocks. That's it. That's it. Okay, yeah. so it wasn't like they were sending away to summer camp hours and hours away. She was really just down the street. She was down the street around the corner, okay. not even in a different county. Oh, my. Okay. Do you know if uh, the other children and, and Phyllis, I mean, are they allowed to have contact with their family? Could, you know, parents go there and visit, you know, take phone calls? You know, what if you know, you know, what, what were they allowed to do? Or is this almost like a little bit like a prison or something? If you, you know, what, to what degree was she being um, controlled there? So I the way I understand it from um, my contact that I've talked to there mm -hmm. on many occasions is that they had a very structured day where they had their schooling and some individual um, therapy sessions. But they also had family sessions where they would allow the family to come in. And they would actually bring the family in in attempts to reconcile the family together. Hmm. Okay. And do you know if that was done in Phyllis's situation? I don't know that that was done because their records keeping at that time was handwritten on a yeah. notebook paper. Right. Right. That's uh, that's what makes these uh, old disappearances very difficult. And uh, that's just something we, you know, you have to deal with. But um, it's good that the, it's, it's good that the facility is even still around. I mean, I can just imagine if the facility wasn't around at all, how much even more difficult it would be. So, uh, so we have this situation where she's there. She's been there a couple times. She's there because she does run away, and and and, um, and she's probably running away because, of course, this abuse that she was uh, getting. And she was the oldest, like you said, the the older sister had moved out, so she might have been bearing the the brunt of all of it. And okay. so that brings us to the date that. Uh, you'll find in, in many different places regarding her disappearance, which is November 1st, 1963. Where does that, as far as you can tell, where does that date come from? That is because the records show she was at the House of Good Shepherd August 22nd to September 23rd. But the space where they wrote left and a colon after that is blank. So everybody's assuming that she fulfilled those that obligation for those dates, mm -hmm. and um, she came home for a couple of days, and then she went to Johnny's bar, which, not my grandfather Johnny, but an uncle Johnny, mm -hmm. um, Corbin Bar, and um, disappeared from there. So it happened a week after her disappearance. But okay. Now, okay, so that's uh, maybe uh, a little bit confusing to people. If she was in yeah. at the Shepherd uh, from till September late September, that's a full month and some days from November 1st. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, and nobody could tell me where that month went to. Hmm. Where's that month? Where was she? Okay, so we're so what you're saying is even though November 1st, 1963 is what I would say out there, mean I mean in the public, on NamUs, on the Charlie Project and elsewhere, it's very possible mm -hmm. that that's not the correct date. That's correct. Okay. I believe the date to be closer to the beginning of October, if not the end of September. Okay. So, um, once again, though, Jimmy, just to go through this one more time, do you have any idea how November 1st was picked out? Was it just picked out by some? Obviously, it wasn't picked out by you. You know who would have picked that date out? Um, Detective McKern 
after speaking with my Uncle Mike, came up with that date. They, the two of them together came up with that date. Okay. Great. All right. I so, don't know if it was out of convenience or what. All right. So the degree of uh, assuredness on November 1st, 1963 is very low, in your opinion. Correct. Okay. Uh, definitely. Okay. And we have to remember how long ago this was. I mean, this was approximately a month before JFK was assassinated. So that's how far it's, you know, taking us back to that same year. So um, the further you go back, the the more difficult it is to pin down an exact, uh, you know, day of a disappearance. Okay. So um, I have it in my notes here. Let's just get to it. What uh, seemingly allegedly happened? What have you, the way you've been able to reconstruct things? Uh, talking to the Good Shepherd, uh, talking to other family members, talking to this guy you've already mentioned, Mike. Um, you know what happened the day that you know she was uh, let go from uh, the Good Shepherd. Supposedly, the day she was let go on September 23rd, she returned to her home and had a normal evening. The next day, she went to uh, Johnny's bar that was located in the St. Louis area, Leaming area, and there she met with my Uncle Mike and some other random friend or acquaintance of Mike's mm-hmm. that gave her a ride to the bus station so she could leave state to go to New Orleans. This guy, nobody could come up with a name. My Uncle Mike, before his passing a few months back, said he tried to remember the name and couldn't come up with a name, so no one was able able to ever come up with the name of this um, gentleman that supposedly gave her and some other young lady a ride to the Greyhound bus station, and they were going to hop a bus and go to New Orleans. But that's not proven. None of that is proven. But this is what your Uncle Mike told you? That is what he has told me. That is what he's told the detectives and everyone. Okay. And unfortunately, like you said, he, he passed away just recently? He did, yes, just mm-hmm. a few months ago. Okay. How old would he have been in, uh, since I guess he was a younger brother, since she didn't have any younger, older brothers? A younger brother, how old would he have been in 1963? Um, 14. 14. He was born in 49. Okay. Okay, so, so he's a 14 year old hanging out at a bar? Yes. Doing shoe shining. Doing shoe shining. That's interesting. Okay. Correct. Okay. Okay. And tell us a little bit more about this bar. It's a bar that was in your family owned by your family. It was. It was family owned. Yes. So um, it's called Corbin's Bar. Um, Johnny's Corbin. Johnny Corbin's Bar. That happens to be my grandfather's name. Phyllis's father's name as well. Um, but it wasn't owned by my grandfather. Huh. So suppose it was just a couple blocks from the house. And uh, she went in there, and he made a couple dollars shoe shining that day, and he gave her the couple dollars he had. It was less than five dollars. So I know things were cheaper back in that day, but how mm-hmm. was a sixteen-year-old and a girl, another gal, going to jump on a Greyhound bus and go several states away to New Orleans with less than five dollars in their pocket? Doesn't even make sense to me. Well, it doesn't, but we want—we just don't want to get to. We're just going to stick to what you've been told. I mean, we'll we'll just let the, the listeners figure out sure. if it makes any any sense to them or not. I I know what you're saying though, but 
Um, so the story is she did come home, but nowhere near November 1st, late, instead late September. The next day, she goes to this bar owned by your family, um, someone in your family, and her younger brother there, Mike, your uncle Mike is there, and she signed some shoes, uh, made some money. Then there's an, an, another girl there, I, I, I'm guessing from the Good Shepherd as well. Supposedly wow. this girl was the girl she met while she was at the house, Good Shepherd. Okay. And nobody knows the gal's name. How mm-hmm. Good Shepherd has no records of anyone else being discharged or disappearing during a two-week time span before or after my Aunt Phyllis was there. Okay. So, and then what Mike says, the way he remembers it, being 14 years old, is that then he, and I guess an adult, uh, got in the car with... Phyllis and this girl, and they went to the, the, the train station or bus station and let those two girls off, and that was that. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Nobody's ever seen or heard from them since. Okay. All right. Um, so that happens, and um, what goes on the days after that? Does anybody file a missing persons report? Does anybody go and ask Mike, hey, I, you said that she went to New Orleans. What happens after late September 1963? So the story I was giving, given, I'm sorry, from my Uncle Mike was that um, when she ran away, and I use quotations around that, mm-hmm. from the House of Good Shepherd, that um, she, the house, a representative from the House of Good Shepherd came over to my grandparents' house. And they together went and filed a missing persons report with the St. Louis PD. That is proven to be false. So that did not happen. Um, St. Louis Police Department has worked closely with me since July of 2018, and there is absolutely zero records of that ever taking place. So, um, so I was told that they went and did that. Um, then I was also told several months later that my grandmother who comes from a home where they can't even feed their children, was able to take a road trip and go to New Orleans to search for my Aunt Phyllis. Mm-hmm. And that, too, has been proven not to have happened. So okay, what I'm you're saying is... Mike. So what you're saying is you're and, finding it uh, hard to find any solid information if anything was done regarding Phyllis's disappearance. That's correct. That's correct. And I think it's important to know that my Uncle Mike um, was in the service and he well we'll we'll get in we'll we'll get it we'll get we'll get we'll get into Mike eventually we're just going to follow okay. we'll get okay we'll just get to that no problem at all but we just want to follow this in a in a particular way okay. okay so um it doesn't the way you're making it sound is that there wasn't much done considering she's 16 years old and you know her brother saw her and said she was going to go to New Orleans it doesn't sound like anybody really gave a dang about that. You're correct. Okay. That is the same assumption that I have came to over okay. the last couple of years. All right. I just want to. What I'm trying to make sure is is that we are portraying this in the correct way. I don't want to give the listeners any, um, you know, some false signals on this. But this is what you're saying is that they just said, okay, she went there, and that was that. This is a hundred percent truth story that I've been told. Okay. All right, and everybody, the way you understand it, everybody just kind of goes on with their lives. Uh, the siblings continue to grow up. They move out. 
they get jobs, they get married, they have kids. Of course, you are eventually born. Uh, your father, uh, as you've already said in this interview, you, you're growing up. You hear about this Phyllis person, but you're not sure who she is, and you're not allowed to ask about her. And then becoming adult, now you're working on it now. And it once again, it just seems like she has all these siblings, and none of them really have done it, did anything to find out what happened to her until you came along. That's correct. All right, so over 50 years, what, about 55 years later? Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. All right, let's – okay, so let's get into this maybe um, a, a little bit deeper now. And um, let's go back to this uh, police report. I just want to go over this one more time for everybody. Is that okay. you, you were told that the Good Shepherd came over – and somebody in your family, they filed a police report, but you've not been able to find any proof that that ever happened. That is correct. And I've had not only the detective from St. Louis who did the final missing persons report for me, um, she has spent two and a half years looking for that report. It was also assigned two detectives to the case, um, Code Adam detectives, and they were on the ground in St. Louis for 60 days. And found no records. When you say 60 days, you mean just within the last couple years? Within the last six months. Last six months, all right. So a couple people were down there trying to figure out, you know, any trace of Phyllis at all. So, well, that's, you know, it's, that's more than most missing persons cases over 50 years old are getting. So, unfortunately, they didn't find anything, but they even did, they even did that, I guess, is noteworthy. Uh, are you then saying that you were the one that finally had to file an official police report? I did, yes. I started the process back in June of 2018 okay. by reaching out to NamUs, and they directed me to speak with um, St. Louis PD, and I had to start with a, a missing persons report before I could work with NamUs, who then put me in touch with NESMEC, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, mm-hmm. because of Phyllis's age and disappearance. Sure. And, that was the route I had to take. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to ask, when you said that you wanted to file a missing persons report for uh, your aunt who had been missing for over 50 years, did the people there in the St. Louis Police Department kind of look at you cross-eyed, or, or what happened? She did. She was very hesitant at first, and I told her I would be happy to drive from my home in Michigan to St. Louis and sit down with her and go through all the details. Um, I typed up a nice uh, letter to her outlining the whole story as I've been given it. Mm-hmm. And she called me within a matter of a couple of days, and she said, we need to talk about this. She said, these things don't add up. So um, I did make a trip to St. Louis from my home and sat down with her, and we did this missing persons report. And she started digging. So she is one detective. She couldn't spend 100% of her time on it. Um, she handles old cases, but she has spent a lot of time on it. Okay. And uh, she's been a wealth of information for me. Yeah. Has she been able to, uh, of course, like you said, Mike died within the last few months. Has she been able to interview any family members who were around at that time, you know, just to get a, a general feel for the for the situation? She did. She um, actually interviewed um, my Aunt Debbie, who lived in the St. Louis area, and my Uncle Mike, who was living in the St. Louis area before his passing. So she did spend time with both of them and do an interview. And um, unfortunately, my Uncle Mark's story had changed during the middle of the interview. 
All right, and we will and we'll so certainly we'll certainly get in we'll certainly get into that. Um mm-hmm. Okay, so that's great that she's doing these things, she's taking the time. Once again though, we have it's been over 50 years, so it shouldn't be a surprise maybe that some people are, are not around anymore and and I, I guess what you're saying is, is that only one of Phyllis's siblings is still alive. That's correct. Wow. Okay. Yep, my Aunt Debbie. Wow, that's unfortunate. Okay. And right. one's dying wish was to get some closure. Yeah. All right, so the police are kind of on it, even though uh, they went down to New Orleans and, and couldn't really find any proof that Phyllis was ever there or, or, or anything. But at least they're trying to do something, and you have this detective who you seem to be working well with. How about the Good Shepherd? Um, when did you first contact them and tell them you know, the entire story? Yeah, so I contacted the House of Good Shepherd after I did the police reports with the detective out of St. Louis. My first contact was July 2018. I spent months emailing and phone calling and being put on hold and said, he doesn't have time, it's an old case, he has to look, um, only to come up with a very brief handwritten notebook um, piece of paper with a few scribbles on it, and then he kind of typed the narrative to go along with it to help me decipher what it means. So, the, for instance, 923-63 being the date of her entrance to the House of the Shepherd and the address where, of the homeless address when she was admitted, um, and then the number of the top corner for the Olive Exchange, whatever that is. Um, mm-hmm. And then it also has physical description of my Aunt Phyllis, including her birthday and weight, and the names and ages of the siblings. And then the information that she was a 10th grader at Roosevelt High School. And that Ms. Donnelly, the caseworker at St. Louis Juvenile Court, that assigned her there. So that's the basic information that I got. And that was it. That was it. All right. And you've and only took, and you've uh, only been able to... Months. Excuse me. Please say that again. Please. That took approximately seven months to get. Wow. And that doesn't sound like a lot. And it took... <laughs> No, it took me hounding him, and I'm relentless, um, and it took me asking Detective McCurran out of St. Louis to contact them, and she did, and the Mara Award from National Center for Missing and Exploited Children also reached out to him, and then he finally released it to me. And did you ever have a chance during any of this to actually talk to, like, the person who runs the Good Shepherd now, uh, is this person aware of uh, your inquiries and everything, or what do you think? Um, I was told they're aware of it. I spoke with um, one of the sisters from the House of Good Shepherd who um, expresses her sympathy for what happened, but says they can't really provide me any other information. Back in that day, things were done on handwritten paper. And they've given me what they had. Okay. Basically, they shut the door on it. Okay. Um, this is the Good Shepherd, this policy. I mean, they just let kids go back then. I, I'm not sure what they do today, but was that their policy back in the, in the early 60s, the way you understand it? That, you know, some, you know, some 16-year-old, once their month is up, they just let the kid go, like walk home or yep. whatever? 
Okay. That is what I found. I actually made a phone call just a few days ago just to see if somebody could explain the policy to me. Um, and I was told that if they weren't happy there, if they were released from there, they were allowed to go and they had, you know, 48 hours to make a phone call to the placement agency. So well, in this case, it was the courts. So she would have had to call Miss Stanley within 48 hours on her own accord. All right, and uh, once again, it's been 50-some years, but you'd think that you'd get more help than that, especially considering that it's a religious organization uh, that actually is supposed to be caring for children. You wouldn't think it would take them seven months to get that information, but I don't know what that information is. Maybe it was in some storage locker, you know, at, you know, storage place that they had to go off-site to get. I, I don't know, but you'd think they could do better than seven months, you'd think. You would think. You would think, yeah. Okay. Uh, your Uncle Mike, he claims that he saw um, Phyllis the day after, seemingly she got out of the Good Shepherd. He said he was working at the bar, and he okay. and another man, let's just go through that again. And, but the problem, of course, is that he's never been able to say this this man's name, this adult's name, correct? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. But his, so let's just go through his story uh, one more time. Uh, what does he say happened that day that he's at this bar that's owned by your family? Let's go through that again. Yeah, he's, um, he says that Phyllis and some other girl came into the bar and asked him for money, said they were going to go to New Orleans and start a new life, so that they had a friend that was out there, and that's where they were going to go to. And she was going to go whether Mike helped or not. So he had made a couple dollars shoe shining, and he gave it to her. And he says, here, I got a friend that will give you a ride to the bus station. Supposedly, they got into this other nice car, and the four of them, off they went. Never to be heard from again. To my understanding, you know, these people were involved in drugs. They were obviously drinking at the time. And... I don't know what was going through their minds. I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't sound like a good situation to me. No. Does anybody else uh, acknowledge seeing Phyllis once she got out of the Good Shepherd? Obviously, she went home. What about you know, your grandfather, your grandmother, the other siblings who were still – I mean, did, did any of them ever admit seeing her at the house when she got out of the Good Shepherd? No. No one can remember the last time they saw her. Only Mike. Nope. Only Mike. Okay. Now, as you've already stated, the detective did have a chance to um, talk to him before he died, and you said that he changed his story. Uh, how do you mean? What? And what did the detective think of this? Well, Detective McCurry, when I first listed the case, um, got the story that she was home for several months, and she disappeared in February or March of 1964, the next year, not the fall of 63, which I was always told the fall of 63 by multiple people in the family. Mm-hmm. So I said, no, that's incorrect. And so after I uh, confronted Mike on that, I said, Mike, why are you giving her false information? That is not the story, and you know that's not the story. He says, oh, well, they, didn't, you know, they don't need to dig into our family. Well, they do. So please give her correct information. And uh, so he changed the story with her. When the Code Adam detectives in the last six months 
which was created by Quisette, and he kept claiming he couldn't remember, he couldn't remember, he couldn't remember. But then he remembered just enough to give a little pieces and bits of information. And the story stayed the same at that point. So the original story for March and April was incorrect that he gave Detective McCurry, and I don't know what his motive was for that. If he had a motive or if he's just been asked it, I don't know. What kind of reputation did, uh, the way you understand, of course, you knew him for several years. Uh, what is what is your Uncle Mike, or was his reputation as a person, out separate from this disappearance? Yes. Um, I wasn't allowed to be alone around him, if that tells you anything. So um, I was protected from him and my Uncle Steve, that the two were really close. They used a lot of drugs, um, LSD. Um, wow. Alcoholics lived in tents out in the woods. Just huh. vagabonds. Okay. So we have a guy, of course, once again, he was only 14 at the time. Phyllis would have been two years older. But okay. Mike is claiming that, you know, this adult, which uh, we don't know if this actually happened or not, but that's what he's saying. But then. The way Mike lived the rest of his life, not a reliable guy, uh, not a guy of high character integrity, it sounds like. Not at all. No, he wasn't trusted by anyone in the family at all to be in their home or around their children. My cousins weren't allowed around him. No one was around, allowed around him. Okay. Unless there was adults to protect them. What – now, Phyllis does have one remaining sibling uh, still alive. What is her name again? Debbie. Debbie. And what has she said about all this? I mean, uh, what age would she, maybe I should ask this, what age would she have been in 1963? So Debbie was quite a bit younger. Um, she was born in, She was born in 1952. Okay. So she would have been 11 yes. at the time of this disappearance. Okay. Not an adult, of course, but 11 is certainly old enough to know, kind of understand what's going on with things. It's not like a, maybe a five-year-old, of course. So right. does she ever remember ever seeing Phyllis come home after The she Good does. Shepherd? She said she does not recall that at all. Um, she doesn't recall Phyllis coming home, and she's almost certain that Phyllis would have reached out to um, Cheryl if she was able to in any way possible. Okay. She said it doesn't sit well with her. Mm -hmm. She keeps telling me, Donna, it doesn't sit well with me. Right. Okay. So she was born in uh, 52, so she is the same age as my older brother, Brian. Okay, so um, what does she think of Mike's story? She has heard different versions of it throughout the years. Mm -hmm. um, the only consistent story is that 
they all got into a car together um, from the bar. And what happened to them from that point has changed. Um, they went partying at one point. Um, he took her straight to the bus station is the most consistent story I got. Um, but growing up, she heard that they went to a party, that they spent some time together drinking and drugging, and, um, but nobody else in the family knew she, um, Phyllis did drugs, to do drugs at all. Has uh, Deborah ever been able to explain why Phyllis was kind of a non-topic, you know, as far as discussions growing up? She, the only thing she could say is that that's the way it was back in the day. Um, we were told not to talk to her and you didn't cross Grandma Grandma. And when she says that, she means her parents, your grandparents, her parents. Correct. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay, so um, and did she the way you uh, once again with your relationship with Deborah? Did she understand that Phyllis was actually missing? Did so she knew about the story, but she knew that nobody heard from Phyllis again. She did, yes, and okay. she's the first one in the family that did her um, ancestry DNA and twenty three and me and all that stuff in hopes that mm. she would find a match out there. So she did that years ago when it first came out, just in hopes that if she was alive, there'd be a match. Okay. Excuse me. Okay, how close? I I don't think that Mike is a very reliable person here. So uh, how long has Cheryl been deceased? Cheryl passed away five years ago. Five years ago. Okay. Did you ever have a chance to talk to her, being that... The, the way you've explained it is Phyllis, when she would run away, was trying to get to Cheryl. They had a connection there. Uh, did you have a chance to talk to Cheryl about Phyllis, and can you pass along any of those conversations? Yes. Um, so I spoke with Cheryl, and Cheryl um, agrees with Debbie. Um, the girls were very close in the family. Patty Ann, uh, Patricia, I'm sorry, um, Debbie and Cheryl were very close. They stuck together pretty closely. And... Um, Cheryl and said, Cheryl says that Phyllis would always confide in her, always talk to her. Mm. She wasn't into drugs. She wasn't into running away. She wasn't, she just wanted to get a better life. So she would leave the home. But she wasn't into anything bad or deceitful or harmful to anyone. She said that Cheryl, that Phyllis, I'm sorry, my gosh, that Phyllis would have reached out to her if she'd been able to physically mm. at all. And she never did. Did you get an impression from Cheryl whether she believed Mike's story or not? Did she believe that – did she ever have an understanding that Phyllis actually came home, and whether it was for a day or several months, anything like that? Did Cheryl she, ever pass that along to you? She believes um, that Phyllis did come home for um, the first day, and the next day is when she came up missing. Okay. But she, but for the record, Cheryl she did not see Phyllis, her. She didn't see her. No, she did not. Okay. All right. So we have. Cheryl and uh, Phyllis were only nine months apart in age, so they were very, very close. Okay. All right. So you're talking to, you got to talk to somebody who is very, I, I believe, reliable, and Cheryl, even though she's not with us anymore, uh, she seems okay. to. Um, you know, have her beliefs. Of course, Deborah, she is still alive. She kind of 
doubts what Mike has been saying about seeing uh, Phyllis. But on the other hand, neither of these two women saw Phyllis after she got out of the Good Shepherd either. So That's it's, a, it's a little tough to understand on top of the fact that uh, neither of your grandparents, to your knowledge, ever mentioned seeing Phyllis either. And if she came home, you'd think that maybe she went home or, or something. Right. And my grandfather passed away probably eight and a half years ago. Um, he lived mm-hmm. to be very, very old. Um, mm-hmm. And I asked him many times, please tell me about Phyllis, please. And the only thing he would say is you need to just let it go. Okay. Which just piques my curiosity even more. Yeah, it does. Okay. And it could be that uh, Phyllis got out of, you know, not to theorize too much, but it could be Phyllis got out of the Good Shepherd and didn't go home. She maybe went to another one of her friend's house that, you know, um, just hasn't talked or, you know, keeping their mouth shut or or whatever else. But it could be she went Uh somewhere else and then went to the bar the next day to avoid all of her family. That is true. Okay. Let's go back to the Good Shepherd uh, for a moment. Uh, is there any chance, being that it took seven months to get uh, that information, is there any chance uh, that they would have records of the children staying at the Good Shepherd around the time that Phyllis was there? They tell me they do have records of who the other um, students were in population at the time, mm. but they cannot release them to me because I have no legal right to them. Have you talked to the detective about getting those records? Because where where I'm th- what I'm thinking is if she did leave with some other girl was there, you might be able to, to kind of uh, do a process of elimination, figure out which girl it could have been that Phyllis was with, if if this is true. And that's the kind of line of thinking that I was on, too, when they assigned the Code Adam detectives that were on the ground for those 60 days just recently – um, they spent a lot of time at the courthouse and at the House of Good Shepherd. Mm-hmm. They dug through years and years of paperwork and found for 90 days surrounding my aunt's time there. They cannot mm-hmm. correlate any other person. They talked to two other women that were there that are still alive, and they don't recall who Phyllis was hanging around with. They can't recall any one certain female that she was closer with than anybody else while she was there. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. So we've talked about uh, these different rumors. We've talked about, you know, with Mike allegedly seeing her. Uh, we've talked about, um, of course, the, the non, the, her, Phyllis being a non-topic for the most part, uh-huh. you know, as, as you've grown up. Um, I have to ask, we, although this hasn't come up, uh, April, are you a parent? And, and I am a parent. And how you know can as a parent can can you even kind of you know relate to any of this at all? I am not, as the listeners know, I'm a still a bachelor at 49. But I think that this kind of case would would affect parents um, very deeply, knowing that a 16 year old girl could go missing and nobody's seeming to look for her. You know, and as you as a parent, how does this you know make you feel? I mean, how, can you relate to any of this at all? I can't relate to it. It baffles me. My, me and my children are so very close. I've had the, I've been able to be in the delivery room with every one of my grandchildren being born. I just share a very close relationship 
with not only my children, but their spouses. Even today, you know, when my youngest son is 28 years old, you know, if I know he's going somewhere with his girlfriend, he calls me to let me know he's home safely. I just share such a close relationship. I can't understand not not caring where your child's at, not caring where your brother or sister's at. I vacation with my sister. We take cruises together. I go down and see my cousins and spend weeks on a time with them. And I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice because my cold. But, um, so I am very close with my family, and I cannot fathom not knowing. And that's the part that drives me the most crazy about this situation is how did anyone not dig enough? How did any? Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't have any means to do it. I'm not here to judge them at all. I'm just saying I'm not going to sit by and just let it go either. Right, even if we are to believe Mike, and I'm not saying there's a reason to believe him or not believe him, I think the only reason people would not believe him because it just sounds incredible that, you know, that a brother, you know, a younger brother would give his sister, older sister a couple bucks, you know, and say, oh, yeah, she's going to New Orleans, and everybody would just accept that. I think that's the reason maybe a lot of people are going to be like, I don't know if I believe that or not, but... Absolutely, especially with his history. Yeah. Yes. There was nothing that should have been believable about that story to anyone. Okay. Uh, I I agree with you. I, like I said, it just seems to me that even without you, know, of course, it would be tough. Maybe you know you start going down. Okay, she went to New Orleans. Where we, where do we even start? You know, looking. You know, that might have been part of it as well. But uh, but supposedly my grandparents went there looking for us. So my yeah. grandmother, I mean that. Not the both of them, but my grandmother supposedly went to New Orleans looking for it. That's a big city. Did you just drive there and hope you were going to see her walking? Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, If I can ask this, uh, being that you've had interactions with the detectives, uh, do they believe Mike at all? They do not. Okay. All right. They do not. Not the detective that wrote the case doesn't believe him, nor the two Code Adam detectives believe him. And those were very separate interviews. Separate years, separate separate months, separate times. Okay. So where is the, what's the current, maybe you just need, being that we've talked about, you know, going back to 1963 and the present day, uh, where does the disappearance of Phyllis Corbin sit now, you know, as far as what is being done and, and what can be done. You know, where are you in where are you in the process? Obviously you're doing this program, of course, hoping it's going to help you out, but you know, what are the next steps that you're thinking about? I'm following every tip and clue. Um I spend countless hours uh talking with different um program directors at National Center for Missing Exploited Children and doing comparisons on Jane Doe's. I'm part of many different Facebook um, groups comparing um, those. At this time, my hope is that I can find some sort of closure. If she did disappear and she wants to be left alone, fine. Mm-hmm. Please just let me know that she was there. Um, if she's gone, let me bring her home. You know, that's all I ask is that somebody, if somebody has any information, if they saw her, if they knew, if they knew she disappeared, 
or if she, they knew she walked away on her own, just tell me. Just give me something. Because somebody has to know something. People maybe, don't just exist and then don't exist. Yes. Uh, maybe we usually don't do this on the program because it's not usually good for uh, in audio programs. But could you give a description of Phyllis? And, you know, being that she was 16, you know, that might be the height she would be today. I know I've been the same height since I've been 16. Uh, put on a, you know, a few more pounds than I was back in 1986-87. But, you know, she might be the same height. Maybe just give a physical description, you know, of her. Does she have any um, notable, you know, characteristics? That, that you sure. knew about, I, please. Yeah, um, I'm told she looks a lot like me. So um, I'm five, foot five and a half, so is she. Um, she's about 120 pounds. I've gone through midlife, I'm 130. So, um, so we share a lot of the common features. The Corbin has a very distinctive ears. They stand out a little more prominent than most people's ears do. Huh. So, and Phyllis in the pictures, shows that she definitely had the Corbin hair. Um, she had thick hair like I do. Um, mine's red. Hers was more of an auburn, a brownish red color. Mm-hmm. It had a na- nice natural wave to it. She had blue piercing eyes like I do. Um, I feel very much like her, like I can relate to her. Um, I know they did an age progression drawing through um, NECMEC. And it. I yeah. do have that age progression drawing. I think... The resemblance as far as facial features is remarkable to my grandmother. Um, So I'm hoping that, you know, sharing her information with you and different programs and venues and that um, age progression drawing that somebody's going to be able to help bring me some closure because I won't stop. I will not stop. Did Phyllis have any um, identifying, did she ever have surgery, any scars? Anything like Never. that that you've ever no. heard about that? No, she had um, freckles, and um, over time the freckles were dissipating, as they do in a lot of teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had two that were very close together um, near her eyebrow. So those are things that people think maybe stayed with her and looked mm-hmm. more like a mole. So, okay. um, so that can be seen in the photos. Okay. Being that we've talked so much about your family and their uh, somewhat indifference to her disappearance over the years, not wanting to talk about it, what kind of family support are you getting now? Um, my Aunt Cheryl's children, um, she had three children, and they're all real close to my age, a few years younger. They are very interested in the case, and they help me as much as possible. Like I shared the outline of today's conversation with them and we all had conversations and made sure that, you know, all of us are remembering the same things. So, um, so you got a very accurate depiction today of mm-hmm. what all of us have been told right. that all of us remember. Obviously, um, to say that a family was, once again, I'll use the word somewhat indifferent to a 16 year old mm-hmm. disappearance obviously can, can hit, possibly hit a lot of nerves. Um, but, you know, you and I talked about, you know, being, you know, fairly frank about it. And, uh, of course, a lot of these people are no longer uh, with us. Maybe that helps a little bit, but I think it's important for the listeners to understand 
you know, how a 16-year-old girl goes missing and how she could still be missing all these years later and you don't find a police report and and the parents kind of just move on with their lives and we need to maybe try to explain, you know, why that was, you know, and what was going on there and why is it that then a niece 50 some years later, you know, is is heading this up. So, uh, you know, I I appreciate you um being very frank, you know, with all of this and you know, because I know sometimes we've had other cases like this where, um, of course, problems can be generated when you start talking about things like this. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure you can yeah. understand that. It just hurts my heart to know that any child, my aunt or anybody else's child, goes to bed or walks out the door not knowing they're loved and cared for. That hurts my heart. Um, I'm very active in the community with different children's programs and literacy and so forth in the Kalamazoo area where I live. And every child should know that they have a champion in their corner that cares, and I'm her champion. Yeah. Do you have a website or a Facebook page, anything like that, set up for Phyllis? Phyllis's disappearance, anything I'm like that? I'm in the process of trying to create one, but um, she is listed on the Charlie Project. Mm-hmm. She is listed on NamUs. Um, she is listed with Go uh, Network. Um, and she's on every missing um, Facebook site out there. Missing and unidentified. Um, help us name her. Um, you name it. Everything that you can find that has to do with Jane Doe's missing persons or unidentified persons, Phyllis is on that site. I've shared her information. I've shared the flyer that has been created for her. Um, so all of that is publicly out there. And I'm in the process of creating Help Me Find Phyllis, or Where's My Aunt? Um, so I'm in the process of creating her own Facebook site for that. Am I to understand that she was not put on NamUs until the last few years? That's correct, yes. Um, okay. It was after June of 2018, after I got the report written, that she was finally listed on NamUs. And now she's MP50556. And whose DNA did they, if they have collected DNA, whose DNA have they collected at NamUs to try to match? They did. Pills? They collected my Aunt Debbie, the only living okay. sibling of, of Phyllis. Okay. Her DNA has been secured and extracted and typed, and it is now being compared on a regular basis to everybody in CODIS and the different areas they mm-hmm. compare them to. Uh, in, if I don't know what kind of spare time you have, Donna, but uh, have you taken time to go through the NamUs unidentified b- database and try I to have. maybe match some remains up over the years? Have you done that? I, ha- I have been doing that. Um, actually, I got five. There's one, um, oh, what's his name, that does a lot of drawings and comparisons. Um, Carl, uh, Carl Koppelman? Yes. So he looked at a comparison and thought my aunt resembled somebody else. So that has been submitted. Unfortunately, the unidentified person remains that they have. They don't have enough DNA, but they have fingerprints. And unfortunately, with my aunt, we don't have fingerprints, but we have DNA from my living aunt. So that one's a hard one to match. But she is being compared to different people. There's been two rule-outs as of today. Um, and then the, there's two that I thought they should compare and they 
are going yeah. ahead and typing them. And when I say typing them, I mean mm. matching up and trying to yeah. match the DNA. So now, I do look. Please, I'm sorry, please. No, I was just saying I do look. I okay. do look all the time. Now, are you limiting the area of Missouri, I mean, Louisiana, being that she allegedly went there, or are you doing the entire United States? What what process are you personally US. using? Entire. Yeah, I'm, yeah I, I did the entire U.S. Because um, you could have gone in any direction. With the information mm-hmm. that I was getting and the inaccuracies that I have found in my Uncle Mike's story, and I think the detectives backed me up on that, mm-hmm. um, there's no say that she went towards New Orleans. And mm-hmm. a psychic reached out to me that believes she went towards California. Yeah, we don't do psychics on Unfound, so I don't know what to think yeah. of that. But but, but um, I just wanted to see what your process is. You know, these process, the process of trying to uh, match missing people with unidentified remains, uh, being what I do, is very interesting to me, and I'm always interested to hear the the process that the people are using. Are they just doing geographic specific locations, or are they more opening up more to the entire United States, or you know, or elsewhere? So. Okay. Yeah, they're opening it to the entire U.S. And I find it fascinating that they came up with somebody out of um, North Carolina that they can compare her to. I would have never thought they were looking that direction, but they are open to the entire U.S. geographical areas. So I'm very pleased by that. Okay. I would certainly think about uh, putting a, a Facebook page together, Donna. Uh, to you know, uh-huh. that would certainly raise the profile. Of her disappearance, um, you know, you might, you know, think about doing that. If you're not comfortable with doing that, maybe, uh, maybe one of the listeners can step up, you know, to help you and contact you. To, they've done it for other guests in the past who didn't have um, a Facebook page set up. That you know, that might help your cause as well. That'd be great. Yes. Um, okay. So uh, that now that every by the time. Um, on Friday, when they hear our voices, now the listeners will know maybe you're looking for somebody. So that maybe we can make that happen. That would be nice. Uh, any final words before we complete this interview, Donna? Um, I can't think of anything. I just really appreciate everything that you do to help get people's name out there and get the information out so families can try to find their loved ones. Uh, we enjoy doing it. As I always like to say, we enjoy doing what we do here, and I, of course, don't work alone. I have a, a team of assistants who volunteer their time doing various things for the program, and they, even though they're not on the program, behind the scenes they do quite a bit, and they care about solving these cases as well, and, and we're happy to do it. We're happy to help you out any way we can. Thank you. You're welcome, and I appreciate you. you being on this episode of Unfound. Absolutely, and if anyone ever has any questions, please reach out. I'm always available. Yeah, why, let's let's say that right now. Uh, why don't you give them, if you feel comfortable, why don't you give out, being that you don't have a Facebook page, why don't you give out your email address uh, in case somebody wants to contact yes. you? How about that? I can be reached at Donna, D-O-N-N-A-L-E-E-C-O-R-B-I-N at Yahoo.com. Donnelly Corbin at yahoo.com. So listeners, 
That's if you think perfect. you can help uh, Donna, if you, um, I know sometimes listeners will volunteer their time to look through NamUs, you know, unidentified remains, or somebody to help you with a Facebook page. I'm hoping uh, a few people will take you up on, you know, something, you know, to help you out. That would be nice. I would love that. That oh. would be a welcome. To, yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for being on this episode, Donna. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome. And that was my interview with Donna Corbin, niece of Phyllis Corbin. I thank her for joining me and all of you on the program. You must certainly understand how tough it can be for Donna to be conducting her own investigation after all these years. She wasn't even born at the time Phyllis disappeared. Phyllis was virtually a non-topic in her family. And the stories Donna has gotten from Mike, for example, have no substantiation and could be complete lies. So I deeply respect her taking on this difficult task. One important point that came from the interview that immediately needs to be singled out is that the November 1st, 1963 date is not correct, despite it being used on NamUs. I'm not sure how much of a difference it makes after 57 years, However, it could be that somebody put that date out there way back in late 1963 to throw off potential investigators. And given that Donna says her Uncle Mike could be the one who mentioned the date first, I think it further puts suspicion on him. I want to now break down the rest of this summation into two parts. First, the Good Shepherd, then Phyllis's family. So, the Good Shepherd. I'm really not sure how big of a part it plays in the disappearance. Of course, if you come even close to believing Mike's story, then the Good Shepherd plays no role at all. However, I'm thinking many of you are going to doubt Mike, meaning the Good Shepherd should be kept in the picture just in case. And it bothers me that the facility hasn't been more responsive to Donna's requests for information. Whatever the situation, Donna must keep open the idea albeit small, that the Good Shepherd could be responsible for Phyllis's disappearance. As for Phyllis's family, I could go on and on talking about their lack of concern for Phyllis, to the point that her name was almost never mentioned. I don't get it, I don't know what to make of it, and it is certainly one of the reasons, if not the main reason, that this case is still unsolved. But concerning the disappearance itself, what caught my ear is seemingly no family members, except for Mike, saw Phyllis after she was allegedly released from the Good Shepherd. What does this mean? It could mean a few things, and you'll have to ponder which choice you like best. Maybe Phyllis never went home after leaving the Good Shepherd. Maybe she went to a friend's place instead, like she did when she'd run away. Or maybe the day she got out of the Good Shepherd, she went directly to the bar. Or she did go home and something happened. And Mike created his own story while the other children either weren't home or they covered for their parents. Whatever selection you like best, I know one thing for sure. I'm glad things are different now. I'll leave the rest of the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound 
and give this podcast a nice review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.